continue reading in Joshua. We're in Joshua 24, verse 14. Let's read together. Now the fear of the Lord, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God who himself brought us out and our fathers up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion, your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people and there in Shechem, he drew up for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against you. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to God. Then Joshua sent the people away, each to his own inheritance. So here we are at the end of the series on, on Joshua. And we've seen that God is faithful to his promises. But let's explore the final chapter of the story together. But before we do that, let me pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that we can gather together and that we can hear your word taught. We pray that um, what we learn today from your word, we can, you can help us to apply in our lives. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was at university, I learnt a short Bible presentation called Two Ways to Live. It goes something like this. God is the loving ruler and creator of the world. But we reject his rule and we try to run our life our own way. But God's punishment for our rebellion is death. But because of God's love for us, he sent his son Jesus to die in our place. And God raised Jesus to life as the ruler of the world. So Jesus now offers us new life. So there are two ways to live, our way or God's way. The hope is then that people will respond by accepting Jesus or asking more questions. But how does Joshua end two ways to live in Joshua chapter 24? 
he goes through something pretty similar and the Israelites respond with, we will follow God, which seems great as far as, as, far as I'm con- concerned. But then Joshua says to the Israelites, you can't do it. Hang on, you can't do it. That, that's not in my training for two ways to live. You can't do it. He said, no, you can't follow God. So let's look at chapter 24 and try and understand what's being taught here. So firstly, to the, to the, um, what do verses, verses 2 to 13 say? In verse 2, it says, this is what God says. So God is speaking through Joshua. In these verses, we see a brief history of what God has done for Israel. And in this chapter, it's highlighted by 21, 21 times God says, I did this, I did that. So what does God focus on? Well, I think he focuses on four things in the first 13 verses. Firstly, God calls his people. In verses 2 to 4, God focuses on uh, the book of Genesis and what he did for the patriarchs. He called them. By grace, God chose Abraham as his people. And verse 3 highlights that where it says, I took your father Abraham. Abraham at the time was worshipping other gods, and, but was saved by God's grace. He did nothing to earn God's selection. So God calls. Number two, God saves his people. In verses 5 to 7, God focuses on the book of Exodus and what he did for Israel by saving them from slavery in Egypt. God saves his people. And verse 6 highlights this, when I brought your people out of Egypt. So God saves. Thirdly, God protects. In verses 8 to 10, God focuses on the book of Numbers and what he did for Israel by protecting them in the wilderness. In verse 8, it says, the Amorites fought against Israel, but God gave the Amorites into Israel's hands. So God protected them. Finally, number four, God blesses his people. In verses 11 to 13, God focuses on the book of Joshua and what he did for Israel by blessing them in giving them the land. Verse 13 says, I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build. So God blesses. So God calls, God saves, God protects and God blesses his people. And just this is just like what God promised he'd do for his people in Genesis chapter 12 when he called Abraham. Abraham now has many descendants and they've been given the land that was promised. So God has been faithful to his promises all those years ago to Abraham. So overall, I think Joshua is trying to say that God is faithful to his promises. But in light of this, God has expectations on his people. And we heard read verses 14 to 28. And there are three things I think that God expects. They are, number one, fear the Lord. 
Number two, serve him. And number three, throw away your other gods. So fear the Lord. Verse 14 sums this up well, and it says, Now fear the Lord and serve him. But what does fear the Lord mean? Well, a good definition, I think, comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So fear the Lord means to understand God's awesome and mighty power as the creator, the saviour and the judge. Then to understand your place before God by treating him with reverence and awe. And then also responding to God with gratitude and worship. So the second point is to serve him. In this passage in Joshua, the word serve is mentioned 16 times. So in response to who God is and what he has done for Israel, they are to serve him. But specifically, what does God ask the Israelites to do? And that's the third point. To throw away your gods. Verse 14. Throw away the gods of your your ancestors worshipped. This is a little bit confusing. I mean, throw them away. Why do they still have them after all that God has done for them already? He chose them. He saves them from Egypt. He protects them in the wilderness. He brings them to the land. He gives them the land. So the Israelites have a choice that God has given them. Serve him or serve the other gods. Two ways to live. The people say they will serve God. Well, that's a relief. I mean, how could they not after all he's done for them? But then Joshua says in verse 19, you are not able to serve the Lord. What? What sort of motivational speech is this that Joshua's trying to give? Now, I went to Karingbah High. And we had a, a very ordinary rugby league team. And just to clarify, I wasn't even good enough to make the ordinary team, but I heard this story about them. Carrying Bar High had one good player, Stephen. And one day they were playing a team from Bathurst. Stephen had been out watching Bathurst, Bathurst warm up. And he comes into the dressing room and he says to his teammates, wow, they are so big. They are, we are going to get smashed today. Now, the coach, rightly, was not impressed and tried to get Stephen to stop, but he went on. They're just so big, we're going to die. (laughs) Now, you can picture the impact of these words and what they had on the rest of the team. What a motivational speech. And all the more coming from the one good player, the leader of the team. Joshua here does something similar. You are not able to serve the Lord. What? I mean, isn't this unexpected? Doesn't God want us to serve him? Well, we've got to look back a little bit at the history to give some context. And and we can see that Israel has failed to serve God time and time again. You might remember the golden calf where Israel worshipped an idol. The grumbling and the complaining in the wilderness. 
The previous whole generation, besides Joshua and Caleb, didn't enter the land because of their sin. And even in the land, Israel failed to disobey God regularly. An example is Achan that we heard preached on before. So why can't they serve God? Well, Joshua 24 verse 19 says, He is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. Being a holy God means that God cannot be around sin. He cannot leave sins unpunished. So remember from the Hebrews 12 passage that God is a consuming fire. And also, how can God justify his jealousy? Well, God has made a covenant with these people, which means they have an exclusive relationship. So God asks Israel to stop worshipping other gods. But foreign gods were there for Abraham in Egypt, in the wilderness, and now in the promised land. And the context of this passage, I think, helps bring out this point. Because in verse 1, we see that Joshua is making this speech at a place called Shechem. And I think that's for two reasons. Back in Genesis 12, God made his promises to Abraham about the land in, um, in a place called Shechem. And so now they are in that land, the land that was promised to Abraham. But also, in Genesis 35, this is where Jacob and his household buried all of their foreign gods so that they would worship the Lord only. And this is what God wants his people to do, exclusively worship him. Now let's come to the last, last few verses, 29 to 33. And I think there's two main reasons why these, these are in the passage. One is again to show that God is faithful to his promises. The key promise here is that Israel are now in the land that God promised Abraham. Joshua is buried in the land and in the inheritance that he was given in verse 30. Joshua, uh, Joseph's bones are buried in the land, in the land inherited by his descendants, in verse 32. And Eliezer, the priest, is buried on his inheritance, in verse 33. So these three key people are now buried in the land they were promised as an inheritance. So God promised Israel a land in Genesis 12, and now that promise is fulfilled. God is faithful to his promises. God did what he said he would do. But secondly, I think there's a hint that maybe the land is not the end of the story. In verse 31 it says, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who had outlived him and who experienced everything that the Lord had done for Israel. They served God, but what about the next generation? Well, if we go quickly to the book of Judges, the next book in the Bible, and we look at chapter 2, verse 7, it says, The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. It's pretty much the same verse as, 20, as Joshua 24, verse 31. 
But then, a few verses later, in Judges chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, we read, After the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up, who neither knew the Lord nor what the Lord had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. What did Israel do? They served foreign gods. So this is why Joshua 24 is so fixated with Israel not serving foreign gods. We see the descent in one generation. One generation is all it takes for Israel to turn back and worship other gods. So was Israel right to say we will serve the Lord or was Joshua right to say no you can't? It doesn't look like they can serve the Lord for very long. But in verses 29 to 33, we also see that Joshua and Eliezer died. Yes, they made it to the land, but what for? To die? It brings up more questions, doesn't it? Is there something more than death? Can the land really be the ultimate fulfilment of God's promises? Did Moses enter the promised land? No, he dies after only seeing the land. So the promised land can't be the ultimate blessing for Moses because he never even gets to live in it. The promised land is not the ultimate fulfilment of God's promises. God's promises are much bigger than the promised land. But the promised land is a foretaste of God's ultimate promise. Let's have a look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Another day. There is more in God's promises than a land for Israel to live in. And Jesus is the one who opens the way to this other day this Sabbath rest. And Jesus is the one who is able to fully and perfectly obey God. So like God for the Israelites, Jesus does the same thing for Christians, but on a grander scale. So one, Jesus calls us to be his people. Two, Jesus saves us from our sins. Three, Jesus protects us while we are in the wilderness. And four, Jesus is faithful to his promises, blessing us with the promise of a land. So let's look at these in turn. Jesus calls us, calls Christians to be his people. Like God did for Abraham and Israel, Jesus calls Christians to be his people. Being his people is not based on what we do or who we are, but it's based on Jesus' choice. And why is this important to us? Well, it gives us hope, real hope. Let's face it, we often say we will do one thing only to do another. But this is hope, and it's hope regardless of who we are or what we have done. Jesus can still choose us. It's hope based on Jesus, not on us. And if Jesus saves his people, even when they're not looking to be saved, like he saved Abraham, 
you can pray to Jesus to save those you know. Secondly, Jesus saves us from our sins. Like God saved Israel from slavery to Egypt, Jesus saves us from our sins. God saving the Israelites from slavery in Egypt is a foretaste or an example of salvation. But with Jesus, it's the ultimate salvation. So there is something worse than slavery in Egypt, and it's sin, because sin separates us from God permanently. Remember, God is a holy God, and sin must be punished with the death of the sinner. But Jesus, by dying on the cross in our place, takes the punishment that our sins deserve and pays that in full. So, as we accept Jesus, you are saved. It's all based on what he did. Thirdly, Jesus protects his people. So, like God protected Israel as they wandered in the wilderness, Jesus protects us as we live our lives. How does he protect us? Well, Hebrews 4 verse 16 says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Does Jesus promise us health and wealth and no suffering in his life, in this life? No. But Jesus does lay down his life for us, so what more loving thing can he do? And fourthly, Jesus is faithful to his promises and blesses us. He promises us a land, and that land is called heaven. And it's our inheritance as Christians. Let me read Revelation 21 verses 1 to 4. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So this is the ultimate goal of God's promises to Abraham. The goal foreshadowed by God in giving Israel the land as an inheritance is for Christians to dwell with God in heaven. This is a place where there is no more sin, suffering or death. And remember Moses. Moses did not enter the promised land. He did not enter that rest promised by God because of his sin. But in Matthew 17, Moses is there with Jesus at Jesus' transfiguration. Here, God gives us a glimpse of Jesus' ultimate majesty and what Jesus will look like in heaven. And Moses is there. Moses now dwells with Jesus in heaven forever. So how do we apply this to us today? How should we respond? 
We've just seen what, that what God has done for Israel foreshadows what Jesus does for Christians. And in the same way, what Joshua teaches Israel about how they are to live is the same as what Jesus teaches Christians about how they are to live now. So Joshua tells Israel how to respond to God's faithfulness. And remember, there was three ways. Fear the Lord, serve God, and put away the other gods. Now, I spoke earlier about what fear of the Lord is, and that's to understand God's awesome and mighty power as the creator, saviour, and judge. To understand your place before God by treating him with reverence and awe and responding to God with gratitude and worship. So God is sovereign, saviour and judge, so the right response is to obey him. So how do we obey him? How do we serve God? Well, we, we do that, and Jesus sums it up for us neatly in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 39, when he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. So love God and love others. That's how we serve God. But Joshua also warns the Israelites to put away their other gods. Well, we're lucky, aren't we, that we don't worship idols made of stone and wood. So how does this relate to us? Well, actually, a false god or idol is anything you place before God. And remember, God wants an exclusive relationship with you. He doesn't want to share you with another god. He's a jealous god. And this is important because belief in foreign gods destroyed the whole second generation of the Israelites in the land. And like Israel, we live in a culture that rejects God. Now, in Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, he outlines five ways to detect your idols, what you might put in place of God. So ask these five questions. Firstly, what are your daydreams? What does your mind dwell on most when you're free to dwell on anything you want? Secondly, where do your uncontrollable emotions show up? When do you get the most upset or angry? Why is that? Thirdly, where do you spend your money most effortlessly? Fourthly, what are your nightmares? Ask yourself, if that happened to me, I just couldn't go on. Is there something you say this about? And finally, what unanswered prayer gives you a strong negative reaction to God. So do your answers to those questions point to Jesus? Do they show him as the first priority in your life? If they do, um, then that's great. But if you're like me, sometimes they don't. So what do we do? Dealing with our idols is dealing with what you love in your heart. The answer to idolatry, though, is not just a list like those questions will give you. It ultimately, Jesus asks you to love him and his grace instead of any other God. And we can only do this through what Jesus has done. 
It's one thing to know that Jesus loves you, but it's another thing to have a sense in your heart that your love, that the love is so powerful that it enables you to be free from the things that you idolise, the approval of others, money, whatever you need. Idols are always things that promise you what only Jesus can give you. But what only Jesus can give you must be experienced in your heart, not just your head, before he will replace your idols. So we've come to the end of the book of Joshua. Throughout Joshua, we've learnt many truths about God. He's faithful to his promises. And the focus of Joshua has been the fulfilment of God's promises to give Israel a land. Israel has been called, saved, protected and blessed by their faithful God and their response should be obedience. And those same principles apply to Christians today. God is just as faithful now to his promises as he was then. But now we see the magnitude of his promises that at the time Israel did not fully understand. Not only does God promise Israel a physical land at a specific time, but he ultimately wants to dwell with us in the ultimate land, heaven, for eternity. So there are two ways to live, but only one that leads to heaven, God's way, through Jesus.